Presentations Podcast. This is episode 87, and it's called, I think it's Lombard. Agatha Christie's, and then there were none, part three, plus conclusion. So this is the end of the book, and then also like what actually happened, which is a separate part of the, of the physical book. If you, It's like 10 bucks if you buy it, but like if you do buy the book and read it, don't, don't go to the end, because it's the whole chunk is back there. I, I've been avoiding it this entire time. I don't know who it, again, title of the episode, I think it's Lombard. Based upon how this mystery story ends, that's my guess. Uh, if you're new, uh, we're doing Agatha Christie's and then there were none. This is the best-selling murder mystery book of like all time. Just basic plot, 10 strangers from England got invited via letter by some dude named U.N. Owen to come to an island called Soldier Island. There's a huge mansion on it. Everybody who received the letter and got an invite, like, was, it, it was just real casual invites. Like, hey, you know, August 8th, come hang out. I got a mansion. Uh, I met you here and there. No real, like, specifics. Like, nobody actually knew UN Owen. It was all like, oh, yeah, I met you two years ago at a summer vacation. Remember me? Anyway, I liked your attitude. Come hang out. That was how they all got invited to the island. So in part one, three people got killed. Part two, three people got killed. We are at part three. We have got our last four players standing in the game. They are Vera Claythorne. This is a mid-20s lady, a uh, student. She got hired. Her letter said, come be a secretary for this dude, UN Owen. She got hired through, like, a secretary, skilled woman agency, like, in Parasite. You ever seen that movie where, like, the mom gets hired but, like, needs a reference of, like, a fake company to make her look more legit? Anyway, Vera Claythorne actually got hired via real company and that letter. So she came to the island looking for like some work to meet this guy. I'm going to make some money. And now she's just surrounded by corpses. That's our first player. Next up, we got Mr. Bloor. Here we go. Retired London policeman trying to put the pieces together. This guy killed a dude. Oh, that's another thing. I'm sorry. If you're new, the whole reason all of these uh, 10 people got invited to this mansion is because they're all guilty of murder that they did outside of being able to be prosecuted by the law for. So, for example, Vera Claythorne, who we just covered, she killed a kid. Uh, she was watching him, and he was going to get this, like, huge inheritance that used to be his Uncle Hugo's inheritance, but then the kid was born, named Cyril, and Vera Claythorne was his babysitter. And she was also madly in love with Hugo. They were kind of hooking up and stuff. But then the family was telling Hugo that, like, you can't, you got to marry a rich lady. You can't marry Vera or anything like that. We got to find you a rich girl. So Vera was watching the kid, and then the kid was like, I want to swim out to some rocks. I want to swim out to some rocks. And then she was like, she knew that he was going to die. So she was just like, yeah, go ahead. And then when he died, she, like, tried to do a fake rescue. And then was like, I tried to get him. I don't know why he went out there. Anyway, so that's the murder that Vera Claythorne's guilty of. Back to Mr. Bloor. This is player number two, our retired London police officer, trying to pick up the clues. However, he did, he is guilty. He arrested a guy and kind of framed him, and then the guy got sent to prison and then sent to a labor camp, and he wasn't physically durable. So when he went to the labor camp, he died of hard labor. That is the death that Mr. Bloor uh, is guilty of. Also, uh, we learned all this in part one because the first night that all 10 people come to the island for dinner time, 
a letter arrives. The butler's like, yo, UNO is not going to be here tonight. He's running a little late. Let's just have some dinner. And then at that dinner, the butler, through instructions, butler didn't know what he was doing. He was told to put a record on in like an adjacent room and there were holes drilled through the wall so the sound could go through. By the way, the whole thing takes place in like 1930. So that's what it looks like. Uh, Great Gatsby Mansion that they say in the book doesn't look haunted, but like it looks haunted now in 2021. Anyway, so night one, the 10 people have dinner. Gramophone gets put on. That's how we learned about all these murder accusations. And in part one, different characters accepted, denied, acted like they didn't know what was going on. But that's how we learned about all these murder accusations. So Vera, guilty of uh, Cyril. And Mr. Bloor, he arrested a guy. That guy just got, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't do hard later. He died. Uh, and then Bloor got a promotion from it. And he knows that he was guilty of it. But if you watch the BBC film version of this that they recently remade, they changed some stuff. Uh, and I do acknowledge that I'm a guy who's now, like, critiquing the adaptation of a murder mystery by the BBC. Like, a murder mystery book. That's where I'm at at 35. It's like, what are you, what are you doing out here, BBC? That's not what happened. Anyway, the BBC thing... They have Mr. Bloor beat a guy to death in prison. As far as I know, in the book, that's not what happened. He arrested a guy, and then the guy went to hard labor, you know, and then he died doing that. But either way, okay, so Bloor guilty of that. Next up, we got Philip Lombard, okay. Uh, he's still being disagreeable, and he's uh, slinking around like he does. I, Agatha Christie, the author, definitely went to a zoo and saw a panther before writing this character, because this guy gets called a panther like nine times in this book. He's just slinking around. He's got a classic wolf face in the mirror. He also brought a gun. Nobody else brought a gun. We learned that. Uh, and then when he was confronted about bringing a gun, he was like, yeah, I bring a gun. Don't be weird about it. This was after a couple people already died. And then when he first came to the house, when it was gramophone murder accusation party time, uh... Lombard showed up and said everybody, they told everybody his name was Davis. And then after the gramophone was like, Philip Lombard. And everybody knew each other's names from first introductions. The judge was like, yo, Mr. Davis, you want to talk about why? Yeah, you want to explain what the hell's going on here? So Lombard had a bad first impression, brought a gun, described as a panther. He's shifty. That's why I think it's him, dude. I'm telling you. As we do the last part here, and this is only, this is chapters 14 through 16. And then we're going to have the conclusion afterwards. After a short musical interlude. Alright, our last character that's still alive. Still going. In our four pack is Doc Armstrong. Hanging tough. Crushing 20 cigarettes an hour. This guy can't stop. The gramophone accused him of killing somebody on an operating table 10 years ago. 10, 15 years ago. Doesn't really specify. Which is true. He was hammered. He had a bad drinking problem like a decade ago. Almost ruined his life. But when it was revealed at like gramophone dinner party time. Armstrong was like, I don't even know whose name that is. That's not even true at all. He just flat denied till you died it. So those are our four players. That's who we got left in this Murder Palace mansion. Vera Claythorne, Mr. Bloor, Philip Lombard, and Doc Armstrong. Now if we left off, uh, part two we left off where the judge uh, just got shot in the head. He did, uh, that. that's what happened. The drawing room is probably pretty messy. Because somebody shot the judge in the head when everybody ran upstairs to see what Vera was screaming about. So, judge is dead. That's where we're going to pick up our story here. Everybody came back downstairs from a false alarm. But Vera got scared of, like, some seaweed and shit. Then they come back downstairs to see, like, they thought the judge just didn't come upstairs for this, like, emergency because he's got old bones. 
nah, he, he got, he stayed, he, he, you know, he's in that chair until somebody moves that body now. He wasn't, somebody did it. So, here we go. All right, everybody helps bring Justice Wargrave's body up to his room. That's what they do when somebody gets murdered here. They bring him up to the room, they close the door, they act like it didn't happen. So they do that to Justice Wargrave. And afterwards, the three, uh, the four that are left uh, are kind of like, why didn't, why didn't we hear the shot? And then Bloor is like, I don't know, we were kind of moving around, people were screaming. You probably, you could have had a gunshot and nobody would have heard it. It's understandable. And then Philip Lombard is like, all right, well, I'm hungry, huh? I have worked up an appetite. Let's go eat something, huh? So the four remaining players go to the kitchen and enjoy themselves over another can of some cold tongue. It's said that they eat it mechanically. There's really not a whole lot of room for talking. These four people are left in a mansion. And when they got there, there was ten people. Now there are six dead bodies in this house as they chew on this cold tongue sitting around a kitchen counter together waiting to get murdered. That's where we're at. All right. So everybody uh, everybody agrees that, like, oh, yeah, things got loud. That's why we didn't hear the gunshot. We're totally fine. After some cold tongue and tin fruit, Vera's like, I, uh, I'm done. I'm not staying up anymore. It's late. It's not even close to, like, late, late, but it's late enough that, like, I'm going to bed. I'm stressed out, okay? Everybody else is like, that's a pretty good idea. You know, I don't know what else we're doing. So... The four players left, Bloor, Armstrong, Lombard, and Vera, all go upstairs and lock themselves in the room at the same time. It looks like a Monty Python sketch where everybody's sitting at the door, looking at each other, three, two, one, close the door, everybody hears a deadbolt at the same time. Again, they're in a house with six dead bodies, a little extreme, but pretty safe. All right, so everybody's in the room, time for some alone time with your own thoughts. Lombard first up here, he sits on his bed. He's kind of worried about what's going on. He then opens the drawer that is in his night table that is next to his bed, which is where he used to keep the revolver. But in part two, we learned that the revolver had gone missing and we don't know who has it. Lombard now opens the drawer in that night table and looks down at the revolver. The revolver's back in Lombard's drawer. We don't know how it got there. It doesn't say in the book whether or not... It just says that he looks down at it and it's back in there. That's all the information we get. All right, cut two. Vera, locked in a room for personal thoughts time. Okay. She's looking around her room. She's super uncomfortable. She notices a giant white marble bear clock. That's kind of odd. That's in her room. That doesn't make her feel great. She stares at that long enough to freak herself out. And then she also looks up at this giant black hook that's in her room. This is in part two, somebody we don't know who use this giant black hook that's that's in this house, this mansion from the 1930s, in order to be able to hang, like, a heavy light fixture, like a chandelier or something from. So it's in, like, a beam. Like, it's, it's, you can, it's stable, you know? And so Vera looks at the white marble bear clock and is like, that's pretty weird. And then she, she just kind of gets hypnotized staring at this giant black hook in her room that had seaweed on it that when she went in there, it, like, hit her neck and she thought it was that little kid's hand from the ocean. We cover what happened there. You know, she gets mesmerized by this black hook. That's not good for your mental health. But she stares at it from a while, for like a while, thinks about Cyril. That's where she's at. All right, cut two. Bloor locked in his room for personal time. Okay. He cannot calm down. This guy's had about enough. He is sitting on the edge of his bed. He's in his room, but he's like, I'm not sleeping. I'm sitting here. I'm going to figure it out myself, dude. So he's, Bloor's sitting on the edge of his bed. And he does end up thinking about the guy that he arrested and 
how that guy died at a labor camp and how that guy had a wife and a kid. And he's like, shit, I've never really thought about that guy's face before. Feel pretty bad about it. And as he's doing that, 1 a.m. rolls around and Mr. Bloor hears footsteps in the hallway. And at first he couldn't tell whether or not this is just his brain playing tricks on him. Because that first happened when he got in his room. He thought he heard a bunch of shit. But then also retired policeman. He's like, ah, this is like, no, this is just in your head, dude. Chill, chill, chill. It's all right. It's all right. But 1 a.m. definitely hears footsteps in the hallway. And he's like, okay, what are we doing about this? So he takes two real soft steps, tippy toes, over to his door. And he leans in his door, and he doesn't hear footsteps anymore. And then he hears a little bit more, and he's like, okay, there's definitely somebody outside of the room right now. I don't know who it is, but I'm going to catch this guy right now. I'm going to end this thing right now. So Bloor then goes back to his night table, super quiet again, tiptoes, grabs some matches, and then he also grabs the lamp from on top of his night table. I'm sorry, if you didn't listen to part two, Bloor grabs matches because there's no more electric anymore. The electricity on the island was already like 1930s. It was run off a private generator. After the butler caught an axe to the head, the beginning of part two, nobody's looking after that generator anymore. So none of these people have any sort of electric lights. So we're down to Charles Dickens candles at this point in time. That is why Bloor grabs the matches. But more importantly, he grabs that heavy, like, uh, I don't know what kind of, like, look, you go antique shopping, and like there's an old metal lamp. I don't know if it's wrought iron or not, but kind of like ornate. As I understand it, it's one of those lamps that like you pick it up and it's like a good 17 pounds. And you're like, holy shit, look at you, lamp. So Bloor grabs that lamp and then wraps the cord around his forearm. So he's ready to go. If he gets in a fight with that lamp, it's let's say it's 17 pounds. That's a pretty good blunt object there. And the cord wrapping around the wrist, he's not going to lose it in a fight because it acts like a lanyard. Pretty smart, right? He's ready to go. He's, he's going out there. He's going hunting. So, with his matches, with his lamp, ready to go, cracks the door open, looks down the staircase, sees a dark figure run out of the house into the middle of the night. And it's storming outside. He doesn't see who it is. It's just a dark figure. It's like Shadow Zelda, or like Shadow Link, just out the door. And Bloor's like, shit, I don't know who that is, right? So he considers running out after him. But then listen to this genius move. Way to go, Bloor. He stops himself from like running after him. Because a little bit of Bloor was like, this, th- these footsteps out- outside my door might be like a trap to kill me. That was his original thought. But he was like, I got to go see what's going on. This lamp's pretty solid. I can take care of myself. So when he goes out there, he almost chases the shadow figure outside. But then Stroke of Genius realizes like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to knock on the doors that are up here of the people that I know are supposed to be in their rooms. Whoever's not in their room is the psycho who just ran outside. And then we know who we're looking for. There we go. Right. So we, so Bloor, great plan goes and knocks on doc Armstrong's door. No answer. Moves on over to Lombard's door. Knocks Lombard answers the door. He's all sleepy. Bloor gives him the whole spiel. Yo, look, dude, Saw a guy just run out, check out this lamp. I could definitely be a guy to death with it. See how I'm using this cord? How smart is this, right? Even this plan of knocking on doors, I was going to go myself anyway. Come with me. I know it's not you. I kind of thought it was you, but like, anyway, you want to go hunting? I think it's Armstrong. I'm just going to double check to make sure that it's like, that Vera is here. But I'm almost sure if you're not too sleepy, let's, you just want to come with? And Lombard's like, yeah, sure. Sounds good. 
So then Lombard and Bloor then go over to Vera's door, give that a little knock. Vera's locked in. She's like, yeah, hi. And so Bloor and Lombard are like, Vera, here's the thing. Armstrong ran out of the house. We're going to go get him. Don't open your door. Even if like Armstrong comes back and he's like, open the door. Don't open the door. Only open the door if it's me, Lombard, if it's Lombard and Bloor only. It has to be both of us, okay? And Vera was like half asleep and she's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, so just keep doing exactly what I'm doing. Sounds great, dude. So Bloor and Lombard are like, all right, Vera squared away. Let's go hunt Armstrong. So Bloor with his crafty lamp plan. Looks up at Lombard, he's like, alright, well, if we go run after him, we gotta be careful, though, because we still don't know where that revolver is, man, so Armstrong might have a revolver, but I got this lamp, I'm telling you, I can't share it, but, like, I could, I could, like, let this cord out and swing it like a gladiator weapon, I feel good about this thing, man, and Lombard's, like, laughs a little bit, and then he pulls his jacket back and shows Bloor the revolver, and Lombard's like, nah, I found this, somebody put this shit back in my, in my night table, I have the revolver. It's just Armstrong out there. I don't know what he's doing, but he's got no gun. You got that lamp. That is a sick weapon. Let's go get him, dude. So Lombard and Bloor run out of the house. Vera's fine. Tucked away. She didn't even really need to be bothered. She's just like, okay, that's fine. So Bloor and Lombard outside. They search the whole island. If you're, if this is the first one you're listening to, the island is very small. The island is like the size of a football field. It's not big. There's some cliffs and stuff, but overall easily searchable island so Lombard and Bloor check out the island no Armstrong they don't know where he went and meanwhile Vera is up in her room and she's starting to like run laps a little bit because she's up now and she knows what's happening so we cut to Vera and she hears something uh like a window break downstairs and then footsteps moving around so she doesn't know what's going on and she decides then and there that okay if nobody comes back to tell me anything I'm just going to stay in this room for like four days. <laughs> I don't ever have to leave this room. I'm good. People skip meals all the time. I'll, I don't have to go anywhere. And then in her head, she takes that to the next level. And she's like, shit, though, if Doc Armstrong comes back here and then burns the whole house down, I will die in a house fire. And then she realizes she takes a look outside of her window and she's like, never mind. There's a flower bed down there. I'm about 20 feet up. I can, I can get there. I can, I'm going to land. I'm not going to roll it. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to pull out a roll and up on the feet. I'm not an acrobat, but I will be able, I don't know, land legs first to break a shin. I'll be okay if they burn this place down. So Vera feels good as she's hearing all this rumbling downstairs. Doesn't know what's going on. Cut to Lauren Lombard back knocking on Vera's door. Hey, Vera, how are you? And she's like, it's late. I don't know. How How are you? It's like 2.30 a.m. now. I've already made a plan. I'm staying in here for four days unless I heard from somebody. What's up? So Bloor and Lombard are like, well, we searched the house. Uh, we also searched outside. We were pretty excited. We uh, we gave it a whack, but we couldn't find. I don't know where Armstrong went, dude. We, we have no idea where that guy went. He just disappeared. Maybe he's in the ocean. Nobody knows where the hell he went. All right, morning of day four. Only three players remaining because overnight Doc Armstrong played jailbreak by himself and nobody knows where he went. 
Our remaining players are Vera Claythorne, Mr. Bloor, and Philip Panther Lombard. All three of them wake up to discover the weather has cleared. After like the first night, it's been thunderstorm, murder mystery, book weather the entire time. But morning of day four, it clears up. So the three of them talk about maybe sometime during the day, we can go up on the cliffs at the edge of the island, close to like mainland England, bring a mirror, maybe signal somebody with Moore's code, maybe light a bonfire. They're trying to work out some sort of plan where they can signal for help because the boatman, Fred Narricott, who's supposed to come every day at, at 8 a.m., he just, he, after, the, after part one where he took them all there, he just quit his job, dude. He walked off the job or he's being paid by somebody to keep all these people on the island and just take a couple days off, get paid time off by some sort of crafty murderer. I don't know. Anyway, after deciding that it's Morse code time, if it comes to that, Bloor and Vera agree that it is weird that they haven't found Doc Armstrong's body yet. And then Lombard chimes in with like, yeah, we already said like maybe somebody threw it in the ocean, you know what I'm saying? And then Bloor kind of comes at Lombard a little bit and is like, hey man, uh, I know that last night it was fun for us to go on a hunting party together and you have that gun, but like, it's weird that you still have that gun now. I don't like you having that gun. It looks bad. I feel like you should go and put it in the lock box that we talked about in part two. That's locked in a box. That's locked in a closet. Because I don't like you having that gun. Technically, me and Vera are your hostages right now. I'm really uncomfortable with you having that pistol, man. Can we talk about this? And Lombard is like, nah. <laughs> no, dude. I'm keeping this gun. What are you talking about? We got like seven people dead on this island, dude. No. And if I wanted to shoot you, I'd do it now. We're all outside talking about doing more. I just kill you all right now. All right. So our remaining three-pack then decide we're already outside. Let's spend the morning chilling outside on the cliffs, okay? Nobody really wants to go back in the house. It's got a weird vibe and a number of dead bodies and a number of different rooms. They're going to have an outdoors day. Vera then points out that in the poem, which there's a creepy poem that is like a through line of this book. When all the guests got there, the poem is on like the inside of every guest door. And it's about ten little soldier boys getting murdered one by one and in specific ways. And all of the deaths that happen in the book correlate with a line of that poem and how a soldier boy gets killed. So uh, Vera points out here that there's a line about uh, somebody gets killed by a red herring and then links that to Doc Armstrong's death. And then she's like, that line means I bet Doc Armstrong is still alive. Because a red herring means that's something that's deliberately thrown in to try to distract or throw you off the scent of being able to follow, like, the point of something, as far as I know. And so Vera points out that, like, look, the line in the poem says red herring. We haven't found Doc Armstrong's body yet. That dude is scampering around. He is the murderer. This all makes sense with the poem. 2 p.m., day four. Everybody's still outside. They heard Vera's theory but they're all pretty on their guard to make sure that they can't get snuck up on. That's one of the benefits of being outside on this beautiful golf course of a small island here. Even though it's petite, you can still see everything. So they're all still chilling outside. But at 2 p.m., Mr. Bloor gets hungry. He's like, I'm a guy. I need regular meals. Okay? And I would like some snacks. And nobody... Not Vera, not Lombard, not nobody is psyched to hear him say that. Nobody wants to go back in that house for snacks, Bloor. What do you need snacks for? But Bloor's serious about it. He's like, I'm going back in that house. 
It's 2 p.m. I'm a regular meals guy. I'm going to go. And then Lombard's like, all right, well, go ahead, but be careful. And also, there's no way I'm lending you this gun, so don't even ask. And Bloor's like, are you sure you're not going to lend me the gun? And Lombard's like, no, I'm not going to lend you the gun, but I'll come up there with you. And Bloor's like, I don't need you coming up there with me with a gun, honestly. You know, I don't want to hurt your feelings or anything, but we're all still kind of on edge. So I'd rather just go alone for some snacks, you know, whatever they got up there. And then I'll, I'll come on back. I don't need a man with a gun uh, coming with me just in case, you know, but I'll be careful. So, Bloor goes up to the house alone for some uh, kettle corn, cold tongue, just snack time. He's like, I got a munch, dude. So, while Bloor's up at the house getting snacks, Vera and Lombard are back outside, and Lombard starts talking to Vera about how Lombard believes Bloor might be the guy. We might be dealing with psychotic murderer Bloor here. And the reason he gives is because nobody the night before, nobody else saw Armstrong run out of the house, which is true. Bloor saw a shadow figure run out of the house, and then Lombard and Vera didn't see that. They just saw Bloor with a lamp in his arm and some matches being like, yo, dude, get up. We got to go get the Armstrong's outside. So there's no proof that that actually happened other than Bloor's word, and this is what Lombard is telling Vera as they're outside while Bloor's up, up at the house making popcorn. Vera's like, all right, well, that's a decent point. And then she counterpunches with like, okay, I know this sounds weird. I heard this thing where like a couple judges from like another universe once came down and killed a bunch of people. I know this is a long shot, but do you think we might be dealing with the supernatural here? And Lombard's like, nah, dude, nah, this is, uh, this is all pretty standard. People can do this to each other. I don't, I mean, I'm not going to make fun of you for saying that, but I definitely don't think it's ghosts. I mean, for example, I mean, I have a gun, you know, I don't think we need ghosts for this kind of violence that's happening on this island. I think it's a little bit simpler than that. So Vera's like, all right, well, that's fine. And then Lombard does ask Vera while they're still alone, while Bloor's up at the house, Lombard's like, hey, just real quick between you and me. Remember what that gramophone said about you killing that kid? Did that shit happen? Or... And Vera at first is like, no, it didn't happen. And then Lombard like comes at her another two, three times. And eventually she's like, yeah, well, he did. He, he, I don't, he's, he swam at, I don't really want to talk about it, but yeah. And Lombard's like, all right, well, thanks for telling me that. And after Vera confesses that the Lombard, they both feel and hear, like, a loud boom thud from up at the house. Oh, no. Vera and Lombard then run up to the house, chasing down what that boom thud was. And they discover the body of Mr. Bloor. And in the book, it said he's, like, light, like splayed out. Spread eagle, and his head got kerplunked hard by that white marble bear clock from Vera's room. And where Mr. Bloor's body is laying is right underneath Vera's window, where said white marble bear clock was located. So, I don't know, somebody really shot-putted that thing pretty accurately about from like 20 feet up to hit that dude's head. That This is the murder that makes the least sense to me out of this book. I don't know who... I don't want to be a stickler for like the physicality of how impractical that is to be able to nail that shot one time on a retired policeman who's probably watching the house as he looks at, I don't, I'm eager to read 
the solution to this book and find out how Bloor got killed by a bear clock from 20 feet up out a window. I don't know how that happens. But either way, RIP Mr. Bloor. That leaves two players remaining. Actually, I mean, technically at this point in time, it's three. Because we still don't know what happened to Doc Armstrong. Vera starts talking about how it has to be Doc Armstrong now. There's got to be some sort of secret room in this mansion, like a priest hole that like you can like hide in and then go out, overhand a, a bear clock on somebody's head, go back in the hole. And Lombard's like, no, this house is new. It's not built like that. New for 1930s. But like with the time of the book, Lombard's like, this house is new. They don't, they don't make them like that anymore. And Vera's like, you don't know that. Armstrong could be like a psychopath and had it extra built in. We don't know anything. We don't know where... Or we don't know where Armstrong is. And Bloor's head is flat now. So it's not him. Vera Lombard then agree that Doc Armstrong is the killer. And then they walk on back down to the cliffs. They, they don't even need to go in the house. They saw all they need to see. They solved the mystery of what that boom thud was. Let's, all, let's go back out into like recreational camp in time. Where we can see everybody and Lombard's got his pistol just in case Armstrong runs up on him. So they're back down at the cliffs laying in the grass. And it's kind of nice weather out. Vera says a thing about like enjoying the sun. She's pretty conflicted. I mean both of these people are pretty messed up at this point in time. They've had four days of like the wildest shit of all time. So they're both trying to hold it together. They have a conversation about where they're going to sleep that night. And Vera's like I'm not going in that house. I'm not. I know last night I had a plan to stay in there for four days straight, but now that I'm out of there and I'm out here, I'll just sleep on this grass, dude. You want to sleep out on this grass with me? And Lombard's like, yeah, I'll sleep out on the grass. That's fine. And if anybody comes out, I'll just stay up and shoot him. And then Lombard uh, like makes like a hit on you joke to Vera and is like, you're going to sleep out here in the grass in that like thin, uh, thin dress? And Vera's like, yeah, dude. I don't care if I'm cold. It, being cold is, I'll be way more cold if I get murdered, okay? So don't worry about me. And Lombard's like, all right, that's fine. After that interaction, Lombard spots something in the water. He says it looks like a boot or maybe some clothes. And Vera's like, oh yeah, I see it too. I don't know what that is. So Vera and Lombard then go down to the water's edge from their perch spot on the cliff. They, they go on down to investigate what this is. And as they get closer, Vera and Lombard discover... That it's not just clothes, it's not just a boot, that is the dead body of Doc Armstrong. Oh no. Oh no, he's all purple. Oh no, Doc. So for real, we only have two players left. And when they discover the body of Doc Armstrong, Vera and, Lem uh, Vera and Lombard take like a minute that feels like way longer than that to just kind of stare at each other. Because those are the only two people left alive on this island now. So now in Vera's head, she's like, it's got to be Lombard. And in Lombard's head, allegedly, it's, you know, it's got to be Vera. I guess, if you still want to act like it's totally not Lombard. But it's got to be Lombard, dude. So after they take a minute to look at each other suspiciously, Lombard breaks the silence and he says, So we know where we are then. And then Vera asks, How'd that marble bear clock death happen? Which is a great question. That is the question I'd want to know too. And then Lombard replies, a conjuring trick. A very good one. And then he says, this is the end. 
we've come to the truth. To which Vera looks out onto the ocean like General General Mack in part one when he would just stare at the ocean because he also was over there like saying like, oh, this is the end, this is the end. But but he's he was into it. He was fine. He was resigned to his death. When Vera says it to herself and she looks out in the ocean, it like makes her want to like do something. She's like, I'm not giving up, dude. I can still get this done. Right. So then after she has that moment of like, this is the end, look out in the ocean. I'm not General MacArthur or uh, General Mack. I'm going to figure this out. Vera then says to Lombard, all right, well, can you at least help me move the body? Let's move Doc Armstrong's body. Okay. He's in the ocean. He's all purple. You don't want to leave him like that. And then Lombard makes fun of Vera and she's like, what is this womanly pity? What are you talking about? And Vera's like, yeah, well, what do you have? No pity. And Lombard's like, I'm not going to have any pity on you. And Vera's like, okay, well, can you just help with the bot? He's in the ocean. Let's at least get him out of the surf. Okay. Let's get him up. I don't, I don't need him to go all the way to the house, but if the police come, it's going to look, it's going to look how it's going to look. If we just have a body outside for no reason. So just for the, you know, just give him a little dignity. He was a nice enough guy. He had some problems. He smoked all of the cigarettes in the house. Help me drag this dude back up onto the grass. So Lombard's like, yeah, whatever. So then Vera and Lombard both grab Armstrong's dead body and they pull him up onto like the grassy safe part. So he's out of the ocean. They then break off from both pulling Lombard or <clears throat> both pulling Armstrong's body up. And as they separate, Lombard then reaches down into his pocket where he keeps his revolver, and there is no revolver in that pocket. Vera lured Lombard into helping pull Doc Armstrong's dead body out of the ocean so that she could do the pickpocket thing where you run into people hard so they don't really feel you, go into their... I'm not a pickpocket, but I've watched... You know, that's how they do it, where they run into your hard as shit. That's what Vera was doing here. So uh, when they were doing the tug of war with the body to get it up there and they were next to each other bumping and grinding, Vera just went and took that revolver. So when Lombard realizes, oh shit, she took my gun, Vera draws the revolver down on Lombard. So she's got him about five feet away. She's got her arms extended with the pistol out. Lombard doesn't know what he's going to do at this point in time. He had the upper hand. Now he's going to get murdered on the beach, right? So in the book, it says that Lombard runs through a bunch of options in his head where it's like, all right, do I try to negotiate with her? Do I try to tell her to calm down? Do I be aggressive with her? And then in the book, it's like Lombard's lived his entire life risky, just aggressive and risky. And so he says like, now you're going to give me that gun. And as soon as he finishes his sentence, he lunges at her. And in the book, Agatha Christie takes one more opportunity to call him Panther-like here. Lombard lunges panther-like towards Vera, who's got a pistol drawn down on him. And Vera just lets the trigger go. Lombard killed midair, shot to the chest, dead on the beach. Ladies and gentlemen, our last surviving player is Vera Claythorne. Here we go. Here we go. Last one left. Vera Claythorne. Lombard's dead. That is it. Also, not to point this out, but in the BBC series, they have Vera Claythorne shoot like a bunch of gunshots at Lombard. That's not how it is in the book. In the book, it's one shot. He was lunging at her. It was a lucky shot. Caught him in the heart. He's dead on the beach, okay? I'm not saying anything. It's, it's, it's artistic interpretation, but in, in the BBC thing, it's like she's not wildly shooting at him. 
She shot him once, and you know that's that that's over, dude. So Lombard's dead on the beach. Vera relief washes over her. It's over. She is on an island alone, except for nine dead bodies. But none of those dead bodies are gonna try to kill her unless this becomes like a sci-fi horror movie, which it doesn't. So she feels good, right? Here we go. I, nobody's even thinking about Cyril anymore. Cyril who? I feel great, right? So she's walking back up to the house now. She is incredibly sleepy. In the book, she becomes exhausted almost as soon as she realizes that she no longer has to worry about anybody else trying to kill her. So Vera Claythorne walks back up to the mansion. And she's not scared of it anymore. But she is so exhausted that she's kind of hallucinating. Not a good sign here. Vera then walks in the house and goes into the dining room where there's three little soldier boys left on it. She takes two of them, overhands them out the window, says, you're behind the times, dear, and then grabs the last China figure and she's like, you're coming with me. Because that's her. She's the last soldier boy. She then goes and walks upstairs because she's like, it is time to take a nap. I have earned it, man. I am tuckered out. So she's holding the pistol. She's got the China doll, uh, Sarge's hero, soldier boy in her hand, feeling good, going up the steps, starts hallucinating. She's this tired. She starts thinking about Cyril, but mostly she starts thinking about Hugo in the poem because she can't remember how the poem ends. What's the last line of it? One little soldier boy left all alone. And she makes up the end. She said, one little soldier boy left all alone. He went and got married and then there were none. So she is full-on hallucinating end of 2001 a space odyssey with all those colors flying at you she's not she's not here she's thinking she's making up poems that aren't there she drops the gun because she doesn't even realize what she's doing she's going up the steps she's 2001 it hard thinking about hugo she then opens the door to her room and sees that off that giant black hook underneath that black hook there's now a chair and hanging directly off that black hook is a noose. And then she realizes what the end of the poem was, which is uh, one little soldier boy left all alone. He went and hanged himself, and then there were none. And as she's hallucinating, she's tired. She's on an island with nine dead bodies. She doesn't know where she is. In her brain, she decides that, like, she hallucinates that Hugo is there, and that also what Hugo wants her to do is to finish the poem. So at the end of the book, Vera Claythorne gets up on that chair, puts herself in that noose, and hangs herself. The last line of the book is like, she kicked the chair out from beneath her. And that is the end of Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. That is the full mystery portion of the book. I, I have not read the solution yet, but that is it. That is all the clues we're going to get. I think it's Lombard. I don't know if you guys got theories out there. I think it's Lombard because, one, he was doing creepy shit out the gate. That fake name thing before you even meet anybody. He made that decision on a train before he even got to Fred Narricott's boat. That's weird. Also, he got paid like a hundred bucks by some guy to come here. That was how Lombard ended up on the island. Is like some dude named Mr. Morris gave him a hundred bucks and was like, oh yeah, you got to go to this island and service a client, figure it out. It was like real ambiguous language. They didn't talk about what's illegal and what's not. 
And Lombard was just like, eh, whatever. Also, Lombard has worked for a number of years as a mercenary. So killing people for money is like not a, a far stretch for this character, you know? And then also, yeah, brought a gun. Brought a gun. Lost the gun. Allegedly, somebody stole it out of his room. And then, what, it's just back? It didn't say who... It didn't say that he was, like, surprised or anything when he found... He just said... In the book, it just says he looks down and the gun's back there. Too many creepy things. I think it's Phil Lombard. And in the end at the beach. That was so weird. That's a weird way to talk to Vera. If you're actually innocent and she's innocent, you guys, you don't have replies like that. Why are you talking like Vincent Price on the beach? You should be just as freaked out. Like, what was that conjuring trick shit? When she asked about the bear thing? It's gotta be Phil Lombard, dude. Anyway, that's that's my pick. I think it was Philip Lombard. I don't know why. I don't know how. I think that dude killed all these people. But at the very end, he got pickpocketed by Vera. And then murdered on the beach. And I think uh, Vera just stressed... You know, that's a tough that's a tough couple of days for anybody. And she had a lot of romantic baggage coming into it, you know, and then was hallucinating and stuff. You know, I, she didn't eat that day. That's another thing. If you don't eat, you can get crabby and grumpy and your emotions can go all over the place sometimes. You got to watch out for that. She didn't go up to the house for snacks with Bloor. Just thought of that now. Anyway, that's my pick. I don't know. I'm going to take a beat. I'm uh, going to go read the end of it and see what the actual solution is. But right now we're going to have a short musical interlude and I'll be right back, dude. All right. Talk to you in a sec. It was a judge. It was the judge. It was not Philip Lombard. It was all the judge. So, all right. So after the actual story, there is a part called the epilogue where it's, I don't know. 10 pages maybe of maybe less than that i don't really know hey eight pages of scotland yard detectives trying to put the pieces together because what happened was a group of boy scouts did see those morse code sos messages and then went and told the people in the town and then after that the cops came out so scotland yard comes out the soldier island and there's 10 dead bodies everybody all the dead bodies everybody's dead Nobody escaped. It's the characters we knew and, I don't know, love, but knew. And uh, they're all still dead where they are. But the epilogue is just Scotland Yard. It's pretty frustrating to read, actually. I don't know if Agatha Christie wrote it to be funny, to mess with people. Because after knowing the what actually happened, reading Scotland Yard cops do the math of like, okay, so this guy was here and this guy, and then get it wrong. And be like, well, we don't know why Armstrong's body got moved. I was reading it, like, wanting to scream at the book of, like, this is incorrect. This is wrong. But anyway, that's what the epilogue is. The cops eventually are just like, I don't know. They identify who everybody is. They, they can't figure it out. That's the end of the epilogue. And then there's a letter in a bottle. Right? And so the last, I, I think it's only, like, eight pages or whatever again. And it's like... It's supposed to be a letter that, I mean, I already told you it's the judge. The judge put in a bottle and overhanded just off Soldier Island before he killed himself. I know. Stay with me on this. Listen to how this all broke out, right? So the judge, the letter, the judge starts by 
it's a, like a long confessional. The judge is like, look, I know I love killing things since I was a kid. I love killing stuff. I love killing wasps when I was young. I'm taking legs off of insects. I'm out there. I knew it when I was young. I enjoyed it. But I also love justice. So that's why I became a judge. Not so I could kill people all the time. But so I could kill a lot of people behind the idea of justice. And he, in the letter he talks about how people called him a hanging judge. But he never thought that that was accurate. Because he's, he specifically cites two cases where he knew that the guys were innocent, even though the evidence looked bad, just because of how he knows or how he knew criminals. So he got those two guys off. But he really took pleasure in his job of like when he like credits the policeman in Scotland Yard for like, they were pretty good at bringing me guys who were guilty of murder. And so I enjoyed, you know, making sure that they walked to the gallows and, and that happened. Right. So the judge, he details all this shit. Right. And then he talks about, oh, I'm sorry. The one thing that's important in the epilogue is that Scotland Yard does say that somebody moved the chair back up against the wall after Vera Claythorne hung herself. So she kicked the chair out. That's supposed to be a chair on the floor. Scotland Yard was like, so well, somebody, Vera Claythorne couldn't have been the last person to die because somebody put this chair back up against the wall. The judge addresses this in the letter. Now, after admitting that he loved killing insects and wasps when he was a kid and explaining why he became a judge and kind of, you know, defending his reputation as a hanging judge, but also totally admitting to loving watching people die that he contended death. He then talks about how he has a medical condition, which is true. In the book, he, he was, uh, when they collected all the drugs together, he did have some, like, medicine and stuff. It's said that he had an operation. I think I skipped that in part one. It's in the BBC thing, too. Where, like, the judge moves around kind of slower. Oh, by the way, in the BBC thing, the guy who plays the judge is, his name is Charles Dance. That's also, like, the, the king from the Lannisters. The old king who gets killed by the crossbow. Oh, on the toilet. That guy. That's the judge in the BBC thing. Charles Dance. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, the judge is, uh, he admits to that he had health problems. He knew he couldn't have a second operation, and he told his doctor just to tell him what was going on. The judge, the doctor was like, yo, man, you're done. So the, doc, so the judge was like, all right, well, it's time to, it's time to go out with a bang. I'm going to kill some people exotically, dude. He just admits this in the letter, and he's like, all right, so I had to come up with an unsolvable murder. But due to his own personal ethics, he couldn't kill unjustly, which is why he went and found... Nine people who were outside of the law, but still committed a murder because then he could all, he could lure them to Soldier Island and then kill them all exotically and do this whole murder mystery plan that he had planned out the whole time. He then details that the way he found the nine people, because he's not counting himself. We'll get to it in a second, but he didn't get shot in the head when they think he got, when people thought he got shot in the head. He found the nine people he was going to invite by creating conversation, like a conversational gambit, like a pickup artist, where like he would go and talk to people of different areas and the conversational gambit that he designed was to be able to find out if they know of anybody who's like guilty of a murder or any sort of weird murder that never got caught by the police. He was fishing for that stuff for years. This plan took years. He knew he was sick and he, st he went out hunting for people to invite to this island. 
So it goes through how he found everybody. Uh, he found Tony Marston, the young kid who loved drinking and driving and uh, killed two kids driving around. He found him. He, that that might have been the most unlucky out of all victims because the judge said that he had like, I don't know, 10 of those kind of people lined up and he just picked Anthony Marston because Marston uh, seemed like he was the least penitent about what he had done. He totally didn't care. He just seemed like an amoral kind of guy. So that's how Tony Marston made the list. The judge first got the idea how to find victims through finding Mr. and Mrs. Rogers by talking to a physician friend. It just came up in happenstance. This is before the judge invented this like conversational tool to be able to try to find these stories and therefore find his victims. By the way, this whole book is Saul. In reading this, I'm like, oh, this is what this is Saul. Okay, I got you. This was this is Saul from 1930. Totally makes sense. That's where these movies came from. I bet. I don't know if those movies credit this book, but they. I don't know. There could have been anything written like this before. These, these those movies have to kind of be taken a little bit of. I don't know. Be influenced by this book because that is this. The judge is the dude from Saul. Sorry, where was I? Oh yeah, so they found he found Mr. and Mrs. Rogers first, talking to a doctor. Because the doctor was like, yo, I heard about this couple, and uh, they were looking after this lady, and she died, and, like, they can't prove it, but, like, there's definitely some foul play, in my opinion. So, actually, Mr. and Mrs. Rogers were the first people to make the judges list of invitees to Soldier Island. Then he went and found Tony Marston. Uh, he found Emily Brent through a suicide, through hearing about the suicide. He found Bloor because he, like, was in contact with the police and heard about the case because he was a judge. He heard about Lombard by a dude who came back from the Amazon and he ran that conversation gambit he has. And then that guy started talking about this guy, Philip Lombard, who like abandoned 20 dudes when he was a mercenary in Africa and they just all died. So that's how Lombard made the list. Doc Armstrong made the list because the judge found the nurse who was uh, also like a sister uh, uh, in that she was uh, uh, like a non-sister. And a nurse, so he went and found her through, like, a nursing home contact and heard that story because she was, like, a serious teetotaler, super anti-drinking at that point in time of her life. And then he got the story out of why. And the sister story is that, like, I was working with this doctor. I knew he was hammered. He killed this lady on an operating table. So the judge was like, oh, yeah, Doc Armstrong's on the list for sure. General MacArthur got put on the list because the judge was talking to, like, war veterans. Now, uh, General Mack was kind of scared that maybe some people knew about what happened in the trenches, but it was so unprovable. And there was only one guy who may have looked at him funny about it that Mac didn't know whether or not it was all in his head. And maybe his friends just stopped calling him and shit. Everybody got old. He didn't know. Turns out that paranoia wasn't just paranoia. Yeah. Rumors were swirling about general Mac sending that guy to his death, but there's no, there's no way to prove that. And on paper, general Mac and the guy that he sent to his death for sleeping with his wife were supposedly really good friends because, again, General Mack took that secret to his grave, didn't tell his wife when he got back, didn't tell him that he knew about the affair, anything like that. But the judge found out about General Mack through, like, war buddies that were talking and then using his conversational gambit. Who else am I leaving out? We did Emily Brent. Who else? Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Rogers, that counts as two. Vera Claythorne, yo, oh, my God. The judge heard about Vera Claythorne from... Hugo himself. Hugo, the judge ran into him on a transatlantic like boat going back and forth. I don't know, transatlantic liner. Come on, Chris. You could have said liner the first time. Damn it, dude. 
Anyway, the judge ran into Hugo. Hugo was hammered. Hugo, Hugo's got a drinking problem now. Ever since Cyril died. So Hugo was shit-faced on the deck. Judge sat down with his conversational gambit and was like, hey, what's up? Anyway, you know about you know, any sort of weird deaths or anything like that? And then Hugo blacked out, was like, yeah, I know a murderess. I was like really in love with her too. I was super into her. And then she, I know for a fact she was looking after my nephew. I know that she's responsible for his death. Nobody else thought about it. I've never told anybody about it. But afterwards, I just could. I still might be in love with her, Judge. I don't know. This Hugo said this shit on a boat. Vera never even knew. I think it would hurt her more knowing this that Hugo knew. Anyway, so Hugo tells the judge about Vera and and the whole thing that he knew that she killed the kid for the inheritance for their future. Hugo knew the whole thing that the whole thing went down. So Vera could be with Hugo, but Hugo said to the judge that like as soon as he looked her in the eyes after the, after Cyril's death, he knew right away that like uh, something's wrong there. And then he told the judge that like what she didn't count on is that she didn't know how much I love that kid. He's my nephew. I love that kid. I love being around him all the time. He can't come on. So that was the end of that. And then that's how Vera Claythorne made the judge's list straight from the mouth of Hugo, man. As far as the actual deaths go, uh, the judge says in the letter that he killed people in order of how much he wanted to see them suffer. Again, straight out of Saul, right? So Tony Marston, he wanted to make the people uh, who felt, what was it? He wanted to make the people that were like the most guilty suffer the most. So he killed Tony Marston because Tony Marston was like, one out of ten that got picked. He could have picked any of the other, like, nine, ten other people that he had for that type of crime. So he cyanided him right after the gramophone played because nobody was paying attention. He cyanided uh, Tony Marston's glass. Tony got choked out. Next up was Mrs. Rogers. Now, after Mrs. Rogers got TKO'd by the gramophone record, she's a nervous lady, dude. She went down. She just laid out like a rug from that, dude. She could not handle it. They bring her upstairs, right? Before she goes to bed, her loving husband, Mr. Rogers, brings her up some brandy, right? But the brandy is sitting there. Judge, who had been prescribed certain types of medicine, especially sleeping medicine, the judge says that he he had been stacking up his sleeping medicine, just not taking it, and just hoarding it over and over again. So he had enough sleeping medicine to at least kill one person. So when Mr. Rogers brought up a nice brandy for his wife, who was having a hard night, the judge creepily with his little turtle body got out there with his little turtle hoof hand, and put a bunch of sleeping pills in it. And then, uh, yeah, that was it for Mrs. Rogers. The judge said that he killed General Mack, but Gen- it didn't hurt or anything. He hit him in the back of the head. But General Mack didn't even hear him come up to him. So he was like, that was what that was. Uh, the next death was Mr. Rogers, who called an axe to the head in the morning. The judge was like, another time. I was super smooth. Guy didn't even hear me come up. Kabow, that's it, dude. Butler. Ow rejoining his wife dude they're hanging out spirit world i don't know where they're guilty of murder i don't know where they're going afterwards but they're both dead now so the judge admits to hitting the baller in the head with an axe after that the emily brent murder okay so the judge still had a couple of sleeping pills left over after killing mrs rogers with most of his sleeping pills so he used like just a couple extra he had left over he spiked miss emily brent's drink on that lunch because before miss emily brent dies in part two 
she gets kind of woozy. Like she doesn't know, like, uh, the example I use in part two is like, you ever drink a lot when you're sitting down and then you stand up after a couple hours and you're like, God damn, dude, I am, I'm a little bit further gone than I plan to be or would like to be. That's what happened to Emily, Emily Brent right before she got all the way murdered. And what that was is that the judge with a little turtle hand threw some more sleeping pills in Emily Brent's drink. And that's why she was all messed up after that lunch, dude. And then after everybody goes into the drawing room, judge went back there, got her with a hypodermic syringe, uh, with cyanide in it. That was the end of Emily Brent, which brings us to the murder of the judge, right? So here's what happened here. The judge pulled aside Doc Armstrong where all this chaos is going on. And this is right when Doc Armstrong starts start smoking like 19 cigarettes an hour. The doc is falling apart, right? So the judge, who's been keeping composed the whole time, pulls Armstrong aside and is like, hey, this is getting crazy, okay? Here's what we got to do. You got to help me run a play real quick so we can smoke out the real murderer, okay? So what we're going to do is I'm going to set up a bunch of seaweed upstairs so people go run upstairs Vera's going to, like, be scared or whatever. And then I'm going to put some, like, red paint on my head. And uh, I'm going to cover myself in, a ta- in, like, thrift store goods. And it's going to look like somebody shot me in the head when everybody goes upstairs. Now, the reason this is going to work is because he's go- they ran the quick and the dead play. You ever see Leonardo DiCaprio Western movie with Russell Crowe in it? From, and uh, Sharon Stone, I believe. From, like, 1992. It's a gunfight Western movie. Anyway, in that movie, same play here. We're the only person who's going to check if somebody got killed in, a, in the duel scenario in the movie or in this book scenario with Judge Wargrave is going to be the doctor. So Doc Armstrong, that's the reason why the judge pulled the doctor aside because he needs the doctor in cahoots to be able to be like, the doctor goes up, checks his head. Oh, that's definitely, he got shot in the head there. Nobody else is going to check the corpse. When they carry the judge upstairs, he just holds his old turtle lungs and tries not to breathe too much. They put him under a sheet. He's good to go to scamper around now. He's still up. Judge didn't get killed. Doc Armstrong was in on it, right? Now, getting to Doc Armstrong's death. So the judge is creepily just kind of like in a room where everybody thinks he's dead. But he's not dead, dude. He's still running around, right? So he tells Doc Armstrong after the fake death thing, yo, dude, meet me outside at like 2 a.m., okay? We got to huddle up and talk about what's going on. This is why Doc Armstrong ran out of the house, which is what Bloor heard. So Bloor comes out. I think actually Bloor, I think Bloor heard Wargrave run out or Armstrong run out. I'm not sure which one. Anyway, either way, those two dudes, uh, Armstrong and Wargrave, got to have a little secret rendezvous outside because they ran the quick of the dead play, right? So they do that. And this is how the red herring death occurs because the judge considers this quick in the dead play that fooled doc armstrong along with fooling everybody else well it like doubly fooled doc armstrong because it counts as a red herring because it distracted him doc armstrong comes out to talk to the judge and be like hey we did so good out there the judge is like yeah we did hold on can you look and see that cliff real quick go by hard shoves him off the island cliffs dude doc armstrong down choppy seas it was still storming out Doc Armstrong can't swim that great. He's not as physically imposing as Bloor or Lombard. He's done. The judge slips back into the house. And the way that the judge kept hiding in the house is that when anybody would go to search the house to see like, oh, what's going on? The judge, after his death, he's just back underneath his white sheet. Nobody's going to check the corpses more than just like a, a cursory 
you know, pull it up there. Oh, still doc. Yeah, you know, that's still the judge. Oh shit. Nobody's gonna like check the pulse or anything. So that's how the judge stayed low. All of this is in the letter. And then that left three people with one revolver. So when Bloor came back up to the house, Judge Wargrave, I'm guessing he stretched out before this, got into Vera's room, did some sort of shit to lure him close to the window, hit a three-pointer with that bear clock right on Bloor's head. That's it, dude. The judge was in there. He came out of his fake corpse room, alley-ooped it, blasted Bloor's head, dude. That's it. So, But it still left Lombard and Vera, and Lombard has a revolver, and the judge knows this. Meanwhile, the judge is in the house camped out looking out the window being like, what's going on down there with these two, huh? Then he sees Lombard and Vera find Armstrong's body. And then he watches that whole thing develop and he sees Vera steal the gun off of Lombard. He sees Lombard jump at Vera. He sees Vera shoot Lombard dead. Then he's still just creepily watching by the windowsill as Vera's like, thank God I won. I'm going back in the house. And that's when the judge sets up the chair and the noose in Vera's room. And he himself was in Vera's room as she was 2001 Space Odyssey hallucinating from all the stress. I just shot a guy in the heart. I'm thinking about Hugo. I don't know what the hell I'm doing with my life. And then he was betting that all of that stress would, when she saw the noose, would be enough to get her to hang herself. But if it didn't work, the judge was hidden behind the dresser right when that was happening at the end of the book. So if she didn't do it, he might have still killed her. But it was enough. And that's, that is the, that is what happened in Agatha Christie's and then there were none. I don't know if I left anybody, I don't think I left anybody out. I feel like I know this book pretty good now. I totally missed it. I thought Lombard talking in riddles for no reason at the end there. I would have liked him to be more of a human when it was just him and Vera on the beach. He could have avoided uh, getting shot in the heart, all things considered, but... Gave a bunch of creepy responses, like, oh, it's a conjuring trick. Either way, great book. Big fan. All right, guys, that's it. It was a judge. If you got it, congratulations. If you didn't get it, I don't, I didn't get it. it, it, it great story. What are you going to do? Anyway, thanks for listening to the show, guys, and uh, I'll talk to you next week. All right, I'll see you guys. Oh, also, uh, two things I forgot real quick. Mr. Morris... The guy who, like, uh, hired Lombard to go out to the island, he was in cahoots with the judge the whole time. The judge bought everything, bought the island, bought the whole thing through Mr. Morris. And then before the judge went to the island, he gave Mr. Morris uh, an overdose of barbiturates to kill him. So technically, Mr. Morris was the 10th victim. He wanted to kill 10 people. But what I really wanted to hit on, uh, just real quick, the judge killed himself. The judge is also dead. After he set up all the stuff, and then the judge was the guy who put the chair back after Vera hung herself. Then the judge rigged up a, a contraption using, like, his eyeglasses, a shoelace. I don't know. It was one of those, like, machines that, like, the, the marble machines that, like, her plunked down with the whole thing. He made a whole device to shoot himself in the head the way that he had faked shooting himself in the head. So he just got back in bed where he was hiding because he knew that he, he has, like, a terminal illness. He was going to die anyway. And that was the way that he was going to complete his, like, perfect... Uh, Saw movie murder plan. But before he did that, he wrote the confession letter, threw it in a bottle, chucked it out to sea. That's eventually how Scotland Yard finds out what happened here. But yeah, so the judge dies too. Anyway, talk to you guys next week. I'll see you.